the first time I went broke, it was like all bad investing. I didn't even spend it on anything fun. It was, I, it was all bad <laughs> investing and buying a huge house. And then I lost all my money. That took about a year to do successfully. You learn a lot of things. You learn how to come back from failure. You learn that you're capable of coming back from failure. Like one of the hard things I had the first two or three times, because this happened more than once, the first two or three times I lost all my money, I kept thinking, boy, I, I just had won the lottery. I'm not really a business guy. And how am I going to get rich again? Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, where it is a great day to be alive. Hope you are staying warm if you're in one of those areas of the country that is getting trounced by the snow machine and the sleet and the freezing weather. I'm seeing some crazy cold pictures on the Facebook out there. Hope you guys are staying safe. And if you're lucky enough to be in a place like, oh, I don't know, Arizona where it's sunny and warm or California where it's sunny and warm and the taxes are high, well, wear your sunscreen. Why don't you? And hydrate while you're at it because, well, you know. Hey, I've got an awesome guest to share with you this week. His name is James Altucher. If you know who he is, then you're excited he has come to crazy money because, well, he's the kind of guy that should be on crazy money. And if you don't know who he is, I'll tell you in depth in a minute or two about him, but I'll give you this much. He is a best-selling author of several books. He's a former hedge fund manager, angel investor, master chess player, an entrepreneur who has started over 20 companies, 17 of which failed, and he's got a lot of insights into the cycle of making and losing money. That's James Altucher coming up in just a moment. want to ask you, friends, hey, if you like what we're doing here on Crazy Money, first of all, subscribe. If you're on one of them apps, it's got a purple subscribe button. Click that, click it, click it now, or follow this show on the app that you're listening to it so that you get every episode of Crazy Money into your app each week. Why is that important? Well, because the quality of the guests just keep getting better, ladies and gentlemen. This year already, I've had Jesse Itzler, the nutrition and performance guru. I've had Daniel Markovitz, the Yale law professor who wrote a really important book called The Meritocracy Trap. New York Times' Ron Lieber about his new book about college and how to pay for college. In the coming weeks, I have incredible guests. Andy Stanley, who is a big pastor here in the Southeast, who's got some great insights into what a leader of a church should be talking about and what kind of example he should be setting for his congregation. I've got Lord John Brown, who is the former CEO of BP. And I ran across his book on Amazon. It's called The Glass Closet. And it's all about his experience of being outed as a gay man by the British tabloids in 2007 in a most spectacular scandal, causing him to have to resign his position of CEO at BP. That was just 13 years ago. The world has changed a lot since then. Anyway, incredible, incredible insights into business with one of the biggest players of my lifetime in business. And I know you're going to want to get all those episodes as they come up in the next few weeks. So subscribe is what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. Also, I want to say thank you to the new members of the Crazy Money Podcast listeners group on Facebook. They would be Darshana Thacker or Tacker. Sorry, Darshana. Don't know if the TH is silent. Well, it's not silent. It's either th or t. Anyway, hope I got it right. Angela Mascaro Reed. I think I got that right since I went to high school with her. The best realtor in all of Greenville, South Carolina. And Trevor DiBritto. DiBritto. Sir, welcome. Thank you for being a part of the group. If you want to join, go to Facebook, search Crazy Money Podcast Listeners Group, click the buttons, 
you'll be a part of this fine organization. It is a great place, by the way, to share your insights into the show, connect with other listeners, and to suggest potential guests for the program. If you'd rather do that in a private venue, you can email me at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Oh, I almost forgot. I totally blew her name last week, so I want to say one more time, welcome to Madge Burgist Pinton. Madge Burgist, not Burgesty. Sorry, that was horrible. Burgist is so much sexier and cosmopolitan. I love it. Thanks, Madge, for being a part of this. All right, let's talk about James Altucher. He's one of these guys who has a massive online following. His podcast has grown over the past several years. He interviews some of the top authors, comedians, business people, and thinkers in the world. And it's because he is one of them as well. He is a massively curious person and has the energy of a half dozen of us on his worst day. So let me tell you more about him again. I mentioned before that he's an author. Did I say he is a master chess player? He is. He's a podcaster, former hedge fund manager, angel investor, and just to top it off, he's also a comedian. Because, you know, once you master all these other things, why not go and try to be a comedian? There's a lot of reasons you shouldn't. That's for my therapist to know and you to find out. Oh, James is also an entrepreneur who has started 20 companies, 17 of which have failed. And over the course of his career, James has made and lost multi-million dollar fortunes three or four times. Oh my God. This guy has such interesting insights and he writes with incredible vulnerability and honesty about his failures, about his depression, about the mistakes he's made in life. And that's one of the reasons people love him is because he tries to say things that need to be said, but other people won't say. Along those lines, you probably read his article from back in August that he posted at first on LinkedIn, but then the New York Post republished it and it was called New York City is Dead Forever, Here's Why. It was passed around the internet like crazy and as you'll hear, no less than Jerry Seinfeld wrote a rebuttal to it in the New York Times. Anyway, James has a lot of great stories, a lot of interesting insights, and he's here to talk about his new book, Skip the Line, which will be out next week, February 23rd, and you can pre-order it on the links in the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, this is James Altucher. James Altucher, welcome to Crazy Money. Paul, thank you for having me on Crazy Money. I like the name Crazy Money. It's kind of like a more extreme mad money. Well, yeah, and it has multiple meanings. We'll let you fill in the value. We'll see if we can't figure it out in the next 45 minutes. You know, I once pitched a TV show called Crazy Money, and it got rejected, but I thought it was a good title also, and I had an interesting idea for the TV show. What was it about? Can you tell us? Yeah, it was sort of like Jon Stewart meets finance news, and I would do a lot of man-on-the-street stuff. Like One of the ideas was... I would dress up as a homeless person and see if I could beg for money on Wall Street where the stock market was making all-time highs just to test the generosity of the people making the most money in today's market. Or I would go over things like why putting money in a 401k might not be the best idea for people or why going to college might not be a smart investment or why buying a house even might not always be such a great investment. So things like that. Like I would look at kind of alternative ways to look at finance. We're like three minutes in and you've already got all these provocative ideas that you're putting forth, which leads me to my first question. I was trying to think of how I could describe you to the audience and I couldn't really summarize it. So I do what I always do when I'm confused. And I went to Wikipedia and it says, James Altucher is an American hedge fund manager, author, podcaster, and entrepreneur, but you're also, or have been among other things, a financial writer, a day trader, chess master, web developer, and a comedian. Is there one cohesive mission behind this multi-pronged career of yours? You know, it might be that 
he who tries to be the master of all ends up being mediocre at all. <laughs> so, so yeah, I've done a lot of different things. I know our mutual friend, Professor First, because I went to grad school for computer science. I started off as a computer scientist and computer programmer. And then I was interested in writing. I was interested in, you know, I made websites for a living. I worked at HBO. So I got interested in making TV shows. And then I started running a hedge fund. So I wrote software to model the markets and different financial strategies. And I started writing for the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and started writing books. Then I got into podcasting and more self-help style books because I lost money so many times and came back from it. I wrote about how I came back from going completely broke after making millions selling companies. So is there a cohesive theme? I don't know. I would say one thing that's interesting about writing, podcasting, and being a comedian and throw in some public speaking is that there's a performance aspect to all of those. Even writing, there's a performance aspect. You're trying to to create some entertaining product that people are entertained by. And podcasting is like that as well. Even though you and I both do a podcast and we're trying to be informative and educational, there's some aspect where it's also entertaining. Comedian is, is probably entertainment first, but a bad comedian really says nothing with their comedy. <laughs> and a good comedian has some interesting, unique way of saying something. You know, a stand-up comedian doesn't just tell jokes. The comedy is material about yourself. So there's some component with all of these things about being entertaining with stories from my own personal experience, as opposed to being like an actor or telling dad jokes, which is about other people's experiences. Hey, easy on the dad jokes, man. <laughs> I like dad jokes too. In fact, I've seen one really famous professional comedian take dad jokes and figure out how to weave them into his personal stories. It seems like they become real material, even though he's borrowing kind of the punchlines from dad jokes. I'm pretty sure he's aware of what he's doing. I'm not sure if other people are aware of it, so I won't mention his name, but it's, it's an interesting strategy for coming up with material. Which of all those things do you enjoy the most and which are you best at? So it's interesting because let me ask you, like you've done a lot of different things. Define enjoyment. Which of these things would you do for free? And I know you're doing several of them for free. I mean, you don't earn money on everything that you've ever done. You don't even attempt to earn money at everything you've ever done. So which of those things would you do knowing there'd never be a payoff? Comedy, podcasting, and chess are three things I've spent, let's say, more than a thousand hours at with each one. And probably podcasting is closer to the 10,000 hours. But none of those really make me money. Like podcasting makes money, but it's not like huge for me. Well, you could say podcasting helps you sell books and keeps your profile pretty visible to the public and that sort of thing. And a connection to your audience and all that. Right. And also there's something I call the spoken wheel approach. Let's say your wheel is finance and money. Okay. Now one spoke is a podcast about money. Another spoke is a book about money. Another spoke might be YouTube videos teaching finance, personal finance from your point of view. If you have a different perspective, you might do coaching or consulting or run a hedge fund. Like there's all these spokes to the money wheel. Same thing. If you're into gardening, podcast is a spoke. YouTube is a spoke. An online course about gardening with Coursera is a spoke. So for every wheel, it shouldn't be the case that you're just a podcaster. You're really like a, you know, this is called crazy money. So you're like a finance guy and podcast is one of the spokes that you should be doing. You should be doing other spokes, which I assume 
you're probably doing or not if podcasting is the main thing. But enjoyment's an interesting word because let's take tennis. Let's say you really love tennis. Well, at least 50% of the time, if you love tennis, at least 50% of the time, you're going to be pretty miserable because you're going to lose approximately 50% of the time unless you only play people who are worse than you. If your whole thing is to play fifth graders in tennis and you're going to win every game, and if that's what's fun for you, then okay. But most of the time you're playing people who are competitive with you, so you should be losing 50% of the time, or you really should be losing more because you should play up as much as you possibly can. Play people who are stronger than you so you get better, in which case you're going to lose more than 50% of the time. You can't say, oh my God, this is the most enjoyable thing ever is to lose more than 50% of the time. And yet you still keep doing it because you love it. I think anything worth doing is not really enjoyable, even though it's still worth doing. (laughs) Well, I think it's just, you have to think about what the definition of enjoy is as you're doing out loud here. But I think that maybe one of the things you're saying is that enjoyment comes from a struggle. Enjoyment comes from improvement, pushing yourself as opposed to just always winning or getting things right 100% of the time. Yeah, right. So maybe what happens is maybe enjoyment means that the highs are higher than other things that are enjoyable. So for instance, I enjoy watching TV pretty much all the time that I watch TV. Very rarely do I have a point when I'm watching TV where I say, man, this is so not fun. Because then I would just turn the TV off. But when I turn on the TV, I know I'm going to watch some show of the hundreds of shows that I like. And so I'll pretty much enjoy TV every time I turn the TV on. But with tennis, as an example, I don't really play tennis, but let's say tennis was my thing. It could be the case that the highs in tennis, like if I'm improving and I beat somebody who's better than me or I win a tournament or whatever, that high might be much higher than the high I get from TV. So maybe that's maybe altogether it adds up to more enjoyment, even though there's some subtraction occasionally. Let's say I add the high points and I subtract the low points, but maybe the overall number at the end still is higher than the enjoyment I get from TV because that's a small enjoyment each time. You mentioned the 10,000 hour rule, and I'll use that as the pivot point to talk about your book, Skip the Line, which comes out on February 23rd. Links to purchase pre-order are in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen. So by all means, check that out. What do you mean by skip the line? And what do you want the reader to come away with? Basically, we're in this world situation right now where, and we've always been in this situation, but now the pandemic has kind of accelerated it. But people are having longer and longer careers People are changing interests more frequently during their life. People are going through multiple either retirements or complete switching industries. So for instance, someone might be an accountant for the first 20 years of their career, and then they might decide to open up a restaurant for the next 20 years of their career, something completely different. At the age of 45, they might say, you know what? I've done okay at accounting, but I'm sick of it now. After 20 years, my life is only going to be so long, and I really love cooking barbecue. So I'm going to start a local restaurant and maybe I don't even want to start a restaurant with tables and waiters and waitresses. I'm going to start a, I'm going to rent commercial space in a commercial kitchen and upload a menu, James's barbecue menu to Uber Eats and Grubhub. And now I've got a restaurant. A restaurant is just a menu. That right there actually is an example of skipping the line. I could say to all my friends, Hey, I've been an accountant for 20 years. I'm sick of it. I want to start a restaurant. And they might say, James, 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 don't go crazy. Okay. You're right at the peak of your career. You're 45 years old. 
you know, you have a mortgage, you have family to take care of, just stick with the accounting, maybe start a restaurant when you're 60. I might not live to 60 for all I know. And so what can I do? How can I start a restaurant? Then I call somebody and they say, oh, don't do a restaurant. That's the fastest way to lose all your money. You're going to have to find a space. You're going to have to get all these regulations, you know, approved. Like you're going to have to have a certain type of refrigerator or a certain type of, you have to get a liquor license, hire waiters and waitresses, and you're going to be there from six in the morning till midnight and you still might not make any money. Well, okay, what's a skip the line approach if I want to just leave accounting and start a restaurant? Well, now we see what a restaurant really is. It's not a space with tables and people in it. A restaurant could just be a menu. I could rent space for almost nothing in a commercial kitchen, and I could come up with six menus, different style cuisines that maybe use a common set of ingredients so I don't have to spend extra money. And I could load all six menus to Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, whatever. And now I've got six restaurants because a restaurant's just a menu now in today's world. (laughs) Right. And whichever gets the most orders in the first week is the restaurant I'll keep, I'll double down on. I'll shut down the other restaurants. And so I just skipped the line. I just started six restaurants in a weekend. And immediately I figured out which menu worked the best. And I doubled down on that and shut down the other restaurants. And that's a skip the line approach. So skipping the line, to summarize, skipping the line is a way to switch interests and then quickly find yourself in the top 1% of that industry or interest or whatever you call it. And to monetize any interest, you kind of have to be in the 1% of your field. And so skipping the line shows all the different ways you can quickly get to the top 1% of your field And maybe it's using techniques that people haven't thought of. Like, for instance, having a restaurant without having a physical location is an interesting idea for the restaurant business. And it's a skip the line sort of technique. Especially today. Yeah. Another example is this guy in the 60s. I think he was at his college and he was doing the sport, the high jump, where you have to run and jump over a high bar. And so in the 60s, people used to run forward and then jump legs first over the bar. <laughs> right. And then right. This- I actually went on YouTube to look it up because I couldn't believe, I mean, I guess I had heard about this, but I really couldn't believe that people actually used to try to hurdle the high jump, but that's basically what they did right before this guy yeah, came fact, along. In fact, so this guy, Dick Fosbury said to his coach, how about if I try jumping backwards? And the coach was like, don't be ridiculous. Okay. Just do it in practice, but don't do it in real life. <laughs> and then something like two years later, this guy who was a nobody at the high jump, in fact, his legs were so long that they would always hit the bar. So everybody thought this was not his sport. And then suddenly from being the worst at the sport, he won the gold medal and broke all the records by jumping backwards. He figured out a way to skip the line completely. He jumped over everybody. And when you do that, when you tell people like, oh, let's say, you know, like I'm 52 years old. Let's say I say to my family, I'm going to move to L.A. and I'm going to be a famous movie star. I've never done acting before in my life. Everyone is going to tell you, not only your family, but even other actors or acting coaches or directors, they'll all tell you, you can't do that. You need to pay your dues. You need to put in the 10,000 hours. You can't just pick up and move to Hollywood. You don't know anybody. You need connections. So everybody will give you the reasons why you can't do something, but it's worth thinking all the reasons why you can and why you should do the thing you want to try doing, or at least ways to experiment to see if this is something that could be interesting for you. So again, in the restaurant example, I don't have to put in the huge monetary investment that is required of a physical restaurant. I can in literally just a weekend create a menu and see if people order my food and like it and leave reviews for it. 
and with almost no investment. So I've taken out maybe 8,000 of the 10,000 hours <laughs> of being good at the restaurant business. I could be good without all the financial worries and without all the time needed to put in. And people don't think that. They just say, you can't do that. How are you going to start a restaurant? Don't be ridiculous. Or you can't make a movie. What are you going to do? You're a big movie. You're Steven Spielberg. All of a sudden, you've been an accountant for 20 years. All the people who say you can't do something, they can't do it. And they don't want you to change. Were there people that told you along the way as you grew and developed and went through school that you couldn't do something? And is this your revenge? Yes, 100%. So I want names, James. Who are they? Exactly. In everything I've ever done, even trying to be a computer programmer, people told me, oh, you can't do this. Don't do this. You can't do it. Or in particular, when I went into the hedge fund business, people said, you've never done any work in the financial industry at all. So you can't do this. One guy literally told me, now you need an MBA, then you need to work for like a bank, and then maybe you can spin off and do a hedge fund. And I did none of that. So rather than waste 10 years of my life, I just started a hedge fund without listening to everybody who told me I can't. Or when I went into comedy, the main people who told me I couldn't do stand-up comedy were other comedians. Like they all were saying things like, look, you've got to pay your dues. You can't just skip the line. You start off at open mics. They literally said, this is where I got the title from is because one guy in particular, I remember telling me, you can't skip the line in comedy. You got to do open mics. And then if some comedy club booker likes you, maybe you could then do what's called the check spot, which is the spot during a lineup where they're handing out the checks. Then maybe you could be an MC and then maybe you can get a better spot. And they said that takes a minimum of 10 years. And so if I tell other comedians, oh, I've been doing comedy now for six years and thousands of shows, they'll say, oh, no, you're still just a baby. Because nobody who's done it for 15 years or 25 years wants to think that in six years you can be (laughs) successful at comedy. But now I've I've literally toured all over the world doing stand-up comedy. I was doing that after, let's call it five years. One of the ways you did that was you bought a comedy club and a good one at that. But not everybody can buy a comedy club, James. True. But I will say that I was already going on stage several times a week. Being a co-owner of a comedy club was just more like, this was the comedy club across the street from my apartment. Right. And it was where I performed most. I wanted it to stay financially healthy. So I helped the prior owners. Now I'm an owner. They're still owners. I helped out the owners when they needed some financial help. And I always said to the booker, don't book me if I'm bombing. And I would pull myself. If I felt like I wasn't doing well, I would pull myself out of the lineups. But yes, being a corner of a comedy club did allow me to get on stage probably a little more frequently. What really helped me was I used my old career, which I was still doing my writing career and my podcasting. I had a lot of people follow me on different social media platforms. And so that convinced the manager to team me up with a guy who was much more advanced than me. He's like a legend in comedy. And we would tour together. And he brought the legend status. And I had all my readers who maybe didn't know him as a comedian, this guy. And so that convinced the manager to put us on tour together. So we've been all over the U.S. We've been to the Netherlands. And I wasn't bad. Like I was good enough that I fit in well with his audience. He fit in well with my audience. And... We've had a fun time. One of the things that I've thought about as I've tried to reinvent myself as a comedian in my post-corporate world, and I've been at it six years full-time on this stretch, is that 
you know, there's all this talk about the 10,000 hour rule that, you know, was made famous by Malcolm Gladwell. And it takes 10,000 hours to, you know, to achieve mastery or even fluency in some cases. But what nobody talks about is that you can put in the 10,000 hours and still suck. Yeah. You just don't know about that. Right. But it's absolutely the truth. Like, and you don't get that time back. And so. And 10,000 hours is a long time. A work year is 2,000 hours. So that's a full-time job for five years or a part-time job for like 20 years. Yeah. As I think about skipping the line, as I was reading the book, I'm like, I'll be 52 in March, just like you. I don't have 10 years. That's exactly how I thought with comedy. I'm 52. So let's say I started six years ago, 46, maybe even a little earlier. So Malcolm Gladwell popularized the 10,000 hour rule. But the guy who developed it, who did all the research, a professor in Florida, Anders Ericsson, and he wrote a book called Peak after Malcolm Gladwell wrote Outliers because he kind of wanted to get his own point of view on the 10,000 hour rule out there. <laughs> right. but anyway, I had Anders on my podcast because I was obsessed with this 10,000 hour rule and how I didn't want to spend 10,000 hours getting good at things. And he did point out that it's not just any 10,000 hours. You have to do what's called deliver practice. So you have to have a coach. You have to have constant feedback. You have to try to be improving every day. But I still didn't like that. When I started doing comedy, I called up Anders and I said, what does it mean even 10,000 hours in comedy? Like, how do I do this? And he said, well, how do you measure success in comedy? Is it number of laughs per minute? Is it money? Is it how many times you go on TV? And I'm like, it's not really any of those things. And because you can't measure success in comedy, I mean, it's just something subjective. Like, you know, when you're succeeding at comedy, but it's not like a metric you can measure. He couldn't really offer advice on how to do the 10,000 hours. And then I spoke to Julia Cameron. So I don't know if you know who Julia Cameron is. She wrote a book called The Artist's Way, where she recommends being creative every morning by journaling. So like just putting right. your pen on the paper and don't stop for 10 minutes. And then you throw it away. You can't look at the, what you wrote for years. She didn't ever heard of the 10,000 hour rule. And I said, this is like really stumping me. Like, how do I kind of literally skip the line in comedy? How do I get creative faster? And she was like, what is this 10,000 hour rule? And so I explained it to her and she's like, oh, no, no, no. She literally said, you poor thing. Like you're, being, you're, you're putting yourself in prison, creative prison with this 10,000 hour rule. And so then I started thinking, well, the comedians that I like the best, each one does their own unique thing. How do they develop that unique voice? And so I started thinking, you know what's better than just putting in 10,000 hours of liberal practice? What if every time I go up, I spend part of my set doing something extremely experimental that would almost be considered insane. It's an experiment. By definition, experiment hasn't really been done before by anybody else. You have a theory that nobody's ever proven one way or the other, and you figure out how to experiment to prove that theory. And also by definition, it has little downside and enormous upside. So with comedy, there's so many different ways you can experiment. I've done stand-up comedy on subway cars. I've done all sorts of weird things in my comedy and most experiments don't work. I'll tell you one that didn't work. I wanted to play what I call the air piano. So you know how people play the air guitar? Sure. So the song Great Balls of Fire has lots of real, like, <laughs> you know, impressive hand motions with the piano. Sure. And so I put on Great Balls of Fire on the stage and then just sat down, pretending to sit down on an invisible chair and then played and made all the hand motions that are come out of nowhere with the piano. Nobody laughed. I had a great time. It was an experiment. <laughs> if, if everybody laughed, I would have known, hey, this is a good direction. But that wasn't a good direction for stand-up comedy. But that's the sort of experiment that I would do. And doing 
I would say a few hundred experiments or a thousand experiments, that's just as good as doing the 10,000 hours. This isn't really a comedy podcast, but I can't resist going down this road a little further with you because I think it's fascinating that you've done so many things, but comedy is the thing you chose that seems to be the biggest flyer of all. Why comedy? Comedy combines so many interesting things. First off, I've been a writer for 30 years, a published writer for 20, but that's really the one area where maybe I have 10,000 hours. But comedy is writing. You have to take an idea and say it in a completely unique way. You know, if I just say the same jokes everyone else does, I'm going to tell a bunch of jokes about Tinder and dating. That's where you waste your 10,000 hours, is talking about something everybody else is talking about. You know, I've seen so many lineups now, in part because I'm an owner of a comedy club and in part because I've done so many performances. I've seen entire lineups, like you say, just do the same types of jokes. And so you have to say something unique in an interesting fashion that no one's ever said before. And like, even though both Chris Rock and Louis C.K. might have jokes about abortion, even with the similar premise, they're going to say the joke in a completely different way than anybody else. Chris Rock's got his very unique style of talking and kind of walking back and forth on the stage like a leopard. No one else does that. And he has a reason for doing that, though. He doesn't want people to even blink while he's performing. There's a potential chance they could miss him because he's walking around so fast on the stage. And he's got that voice. Louis C.K. has a different style where he'll always combine his jokes with some absurdist punchline. And he has his unique way of doing things that are just it borders on absurd. But anyway, with comedy, you have to come up with something unique. And then there's this performance aspect where you have to learn how to perform, you have to learn how to improv, you have to learn how to read people really well. Like when you're doing comedy, and let's say there's 50 people in the audience in a regular club or 100 people in the audience, you're aware of what everybody in the audience is thinking. So you know who to interact with and what to say, and you just get really good at like reading people also. So there's so many different sub-skills of comedy that was just so enjoyable to begin learning. And it's one of those things that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. I don't think people realize that about comedy. Like one of my friends asked me like, why are you doing this comedy stuff? Like you're funny. Why do you need to like prove it? And it's like, it's not just a sense of humor. A sense of humor is in the mix of all the skills you learn, but there's likability, there's crowd work, there's performing, there's writing. There's so many sub skills. And there's the drug of being acknowledged on stage. The feedback is instantaneous. It's not like writing a book and then you have to wait a year before you know if people like it. People will either laugh or they don't laugh. You know right away whether you're doing good or not. And you want to talk miserable. It's a big exercise in overcoming potentially very depressing moments. So maybe comedy is instructive for Skip the Line because instead of doing 10,000 hours, it seems that a big part of skipping the line is just accelerating iteration, forcing yourself to improve both more quickly and constantly. You even have the 1% rule where you're saying you've got to improve 1% per day if you want to be on the right path. Really, there's a whole basket of skills for skipping the line. You know, one is identifying what are the sub-skills of what you're trying to do. So like, for instance, we'll take comedy. There's a skill of learning one-liners. There's a skill of crowd work. There's a skill of stage work. There's a skill of telling stories with punchlines in the middle. So there's all these sub-skills. Just like with finance, there's the skill of value investing, growth investing, trading with options, 
doing deals, understanding how to read deals, understanding how to read P&L statements. There's all these sub-skills. So one thing about Skipping Line is learning all the sub-skills you have to know. The other thing is there's skills, there's the domain, and there's the field. Everything can be broken down. Anything worth doing, any industry can be broken down into skills, domain, field. So with computer programming, the skills are, are you a good programmer? The domain is, well, am I going to program mobile apps or desktop apps or systems kind of programming or finance kind of programming? And then the field is, well, okay, I want to do mobile apps. So I've got to get familiar with the Apple programming languages and the Apple phone and Android operating system for all the different phones. And then if I build an app, I can sell it to salesforce.com. So knowing the field is also important to monetize your interest in programming. You have to be an expert in skills, domain, field, and breaking it down into those. And then it's how do you be creative? How do you do something? You've just started programming. How do you do something that's never been done before when you just started? Well, okay, maybe Google exists in the U.S., but it doesn't exist in Russia. So somebody at some point said, well, let's make mail.ru. And now that's the Google of Russia. In China, someone made Baidu, and, and that was the Google of China. So you kind of combine different ideas and, and understanding kind of the easy ways to be creative is part of skipping the line too. You know, and then another important part of skipping the line is persuasion. Once you feel you're good enough to do X, you have to be able to convince other people of it. No one's going to just say, oh, James, you've never performed before here. Go up on stage right next to Chris Rock. No one's going to say that. So you have to be able to persuade somebody that they should give you a chance to perform right next to Chris Rock. You're very open about the cycle you've gone through of making money and then going broke, including one time in your grown-up life when you checked your bank account balances and had a grand total of $143. What did you learn from failure, if that's how you want to describe going broke? The $143 happened after I sold a company where I made $15 million. So I literally went from- <laughs> Those taxes will get you. It wasn't like I just kept it in this one stock and then I lost it all like a lot of people did in the dot-com boom, but I actually cashed out and then lost it. And, you know, failure, people nowadays seem to wear failure like a badge of honor, but it's totally not. Like failure sucks (laughs) so bad. Like losing all your money when you have a mortgage and two kids is the worst thing. How did you feel when you woke up in the morning during that period of your life? I felt so bad. I just felt miserable all the time. I don't even know if I was like clinically depressed. I mean, I was situationally depressed. I was losing my home. I didn't have any relationship anymore with my wife. I felt like my kids were going to be homeless because of me. Like I didn't have any money. And after spending a lot of money and losing a lot of money on the first time I went broke, it was like all bad investing. I didn't even spend it on anything fun. It was just investing and buying a huge house. And then I lost all my money and I took about a year to do successfully. I guess you learn a lot of things, which is unfortunately you learn how to come back from failure. You learn that you're capable of coming back from failure. Like one of the hard things I had the first two or three times, because this happened more than once, the first two or three times I lost all my money. I kept thinking, boy, I, I just had won the lottery I'm not really a business guy. And how am I going to get rich again? If I focus on it, I learned I was able to make money. Although if I went broke again, I'd still be scared of that. But I also learned how to not be as depressed. So each time I went broke, it was less time between coming back. 
And I learned a lot of what not to do. So I have a lot of rules now when I try something like start a new business or make investments or buy things. I have a checklist that I go through. And I also learned the importance of taking care of myself. So if you're sick, for instance, you can't succeed. You can't come up with new ideas and execute them. If you're having arguments all the time with your spouse or your coworkers or your friends, you're not going to succeed because you're not going to have time to be creative. You use too much emotional energy arguing. If you are not creative, you're not going to come up with ideas for a good business. And most people don't realize creativity is a muscle and it has to be exercised. Kind of like I was describing before, Julia Cameron, as she says, to journal every day. And I always do this myself. I write 10 ideas a day down and I practice my idea muscle, my creativity muscle. What were your ideas today? So my ideas today were, I'm going to do a podcast about my favorite TV shows, but also I'm going to interlace that with the 10 times I've pitched TV shows and what I've learned from each experience. I had to think of what all the TV shows I liked and what I learned from them are. And then I had to think of the 10 times I've pitched TV shows and what I learned from each experience. And I never had a TV show actually get accepted to anything. So what did I learn overall? So that was basically my idealist of the day. So your first episode can be the Brady Bunch, Barney Miller, and why HBO didn't buy crazy money. I still can't figure out why Fox Business didn't take it, but that's another story. Here's the interesting thing about writing ideas down is that they're not meant to be good ideas necessarily. Like how often does someone really have a good idea? The whole point is, is that there's no such thing as blind inspiration that hits like lightning. You only are receptive to inspiration if your idea muscle is well exercised. But it could happen that along the way, a lot of times, instead of coming up with ideas for myself, I'll come up with ideas for someone else. And then I'll send it to that person if I think the ideas are good. So a few months ago, I had an idea for someone else to do a book that I thought would be an amazing book if this person did it. So I sent my ideas to this person and He's like, this is great. Can you help me out? And I said, no, no, no. This is just for you to do. And one thing led to another. We kept talking about it. I wrote more. I fleshed out the ideas a bit more for him to kind of help him out. But then I got really involved and we pitched it to Amazon. It's a whole story. We pitched it to Amazon. Amazon said, let's do this as an audio book. We did it. And now March 31st, we have this audio book coming out about racism. And it totally came out of an idealist that I did. And the guy I'm doing it with is Charlemagne the God, who's this huge, 10 million people listen to his radio show every day. And so it's a good person to work with to put a book out. So in addition to Skip the Line coming out February 23rd, because I wrote this one idealist a few months ago, I have another book coming out March 31st, which is going to be a huge book. Like Amazon's going to feature it on their front page and so on. That's amazing. So many of the things that you do just seem, I don't know, you're just out there. Like you don't care... (laughs) what seems to be logical and what doesn't more than one person has suggested that you're a little crazy. Do you think that's been helpful to you? I don't know because a lot of times what happens is I'll say something that I think is interesting or worth thinking about. It's not worth saying something that's already been said. Like in 2005, when I was writing for the financial times, I wrote an article. Nobody should ever go to college again, or nobody should send their kids to college. And nobody had really written that before. 
Like now it's, I don't want to say the conversation is mainstream, but it's a lot more accepted. Peter Thiel talked about it a lot. Everybody talks about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's become more out there. But at the time, everyone thought I was just an idiot for saying it. And like these people would write blog posts trashing me. And I went on Yahoo Finance and there was over 10,000 comments on the video about this. And most people were just like, why do you get this homeless guy on Yahoo Finance? And, you know, what does he know about going to college? And or, or people would say the reverse, like, oh, yeah, it's easy for him to say he went to college and now he doesn't want anybody else to succeed. So he doesn't want them to go to college. Of course, you can't win against the haters. You know, sometimes it's caused me some anguish to have so many people angry at me over an opinion. Like I've lost friends by saying don't go to college. And I lost friends by saying you shouldn't buy a home or I lost friends saying just recently, New York City. Right. Well, has- it's exactly, I was going to ask you about that, right? You published an op-ed piece in the New York Post called New York City's Dead Forever, Here's Why. It was read tens of millions of times. I mean, yeah. like it went crazy viral to the point that Jerry Seinfeld wrote a response piece in the New York Times and threw you under the bus. I mean, like in a big way, right? Oh yeah. Not only, he had never written an op-ed before in his life. And <laughs> you line. inspired Jerry Seinfeld to skip the line. Congratulations. Right. And, and, you know, I respect that a lot of people who are look, and he's a good writer too. I actually enjoyed his book that came out a few weeks after he wrote his article. It's called, is this anything? And it's about his comedy career. He wrote a good book, a great book, which I recommend to everybody, but he had never written an op-ed before. And rule one of having an opinion is once you start insulting the other people, you've lost the debate. And he spent his entire article insulting me when he could have made, he made one or two like good points. And, but he spent almost 90% of the article just calling me insults. And I don't know where he would make this stuff up. And uh, did it bother you? Yeah. You know, at first it didn't, but then so many people, jumped on the Seinfeld bandwagon. Like right now on 80th Street and Madison Avenue in New York City, there's a construction project and covering up the size of a building. Someone printed up his article and made a billboard the size of a building. You know, <laughs> they loved it. and his article has won awards, like best article about New York City. And so many of my friends viewed Seinfeld's, you know, op-ed as a way to just trash me over this, like friends, family, people wrote article after article, just trashing me. And I'm like, really? You are trashing me too? Like what is going on? Like I've lost a ton of friends and family. I had friends lose friends by defending me. Like that's how crazy it got. Like three of my friends have told me that they have literally been unfriended because they defended me on the New York City is dead. I'm going to go to GoDaddy and see if jamesaltichersucks.com is available. I wonder how much traffic that gets. But you, surely when you're writing this, you must anticipate that people are going to have an opinion on what you write. And it's that much more interesting because you say several times in the book that you wanted to be a novelist. All these years you're having good corporate success, not counting the times you're going broke, but you're doing well. You've got great ideas. You still say you come back to wanting to be a novelist because you believe that would be the source of respect that people have for you. Even the year I started doing stand-up comedy, my New Year's resolution that year was to write a novel. And then on February of that year, I got up on stage and I'm like, oh, everything just changed. Like I'm, right, I'm an right. addict. So 
But do you see what I'm saying? You're sort of like balancing between this desire to be a provocateur or the irresistible urge to provoke people and this chronic need for attention, which, by the way, anybody that's doing stand-up comedy has. So I'm guilty as well. I think I'm guilty of the chronic need for attention. People think I'm just trying to be provocative, but I'm not doing that. It just so happens that I won't write something that everyone else is writing. So I'll wait until I have something interesting and new to say. Like, I'm not going to write something just to be provocative. I'm going to write because I really strongly believe something. If everything you write is just like this ridiculous contrarian stance about everything, then people will stop trusting you. It's funny. I don't really expect to have a negative reaction to anything because I make such a strong argument and I'm not just trying to be provocative. I'm coming up with a really strong argument for everything I write. I try to answer all the objections before they occur. So I think, of course, everyone's going to agree with me on what I'm writing here because my argument is so strong. And in fact, like Seinfeld never really responded to my main points about New York City. None of the articles, to this day, none of the articles been written against me have addressed any of my points, except for the problem they all have now is that everything I predicted is starting to come true. So, you know, and even the stuff about college, now you see like, oh, why should people spend $70,000 a year to take classes on Zoom from their home? And it's just ridiculous now. So, again, I'm not trying to be provocative, but I am trying to be a good writer and say interesting things. In just a few minutes we have left, I want to mention that you end your book listing many pieces of advice for your children. If you had to pick one of those pieces of guidance for your kids and for the reader, what would it be? I think it's really important to stick to the basics. And so, unfortunately, the answer is cliche a little bit, but you have to be physically healthy. So you always have to work on your physical health. You have to be emotionally healthy. So you always have to be improving your relationships. Like there's that cliche that you're the average of the five people you spend your most time with. That's really true. And I remember one time I was talking on my podcast with this guy, Mike Messimino, who was an astronaut. And he kept failing to get into NASA for various reasons. And so he decided while he's trying to become an astronaut, he would get a PhD in astrophysics or whatever. And so he went into a PhD program at MIT to make robots on Mars. That was his PhD thesis. And he said one of his classrooms, like nine out of the 11 people in the class all ended up going into space. And if you think about it, if he had just been in a bar instead, he wouldn't be able to say nine out of these 11 people at this bar are going to be astronauts. It's only by putting himself in an environment always with astronauts that he eventually did get into space. And so, you know, emotional health is important. And then creative health, like exercising your idea muscle every day is going to be the key to success right now because no one's going to care about degrees. They're only going to care about skills and skills and ability and skipping the line is built up by being creative. So those three things are the most important things. And then having an ability to not ponder over failure too much, like be able to bounce back. These are the basic skills, but they're the most important things of all. And if there's one huge reason for my listeners to pick up this book, it's my favorite quote. And here it is from James. Most people don't read. Those people are losers. It's true because here's the great thing about reading is you're like a vampire. And uh, <laughs> like, like because we do podcasts, I'm sure you're a good reader anyway. And I always was a reader because a writer should always read. But because I have people on my podcast, I always read 
all the books that are coming out, particularly those of my podcast guests. And it's like I take their entire life and I completely absorb it. They had to live their entire life to write that book. But I just had to read that book for a week. And it's like I absorb some percentage of their entire life. I have like hundreds of lives inside of me. I can draw upon their experiences to solve my problems, which if you don't read, you can only draw upon your own experiences to solve your problems and not, you know, Richard Branson's experiences or Judy Bloom's experiences or Gary Kasparov's experiences or Chris Rock's experiences. One of your podcasts I really enjoyed listening to was Stephen Pressfield from a few years ago, who's the author of The War of Art, which I've read three or four times and everybody should read. And I remember him saying how he expressed surprise at how well prepared you were for his interviews. And I was like, as I started this podcast, I was like, I have to be as prepared for each guest as James was when he interviewed Stephen Pressfield, because it was such an important indication to him that you honored his time. And I always want both the listener and the guest on the podcast to feel that way. Well, it's amazing to me. And thank you very much. Like you're probably the first person to read the book because it hasn't come out yet. I sent it to you for this podcast, but it's amazing to me how many people get into the podcast business, but don't prepare for their guests at all. Like, why are you doing a podcast if you're not going to try to bring out the best in your guests and entertain your listeners and so on. So I think preparation is really important. I just had Stephen Pressfield on again, actually. It's coming out next month because his next book's coming out next month. But in that first podcast with him, after the podcast was over, we were just chatting and he said to me something interesting. He said, in order to be a writer, he had to give up so much in his life. And then I had to go. I couldn't really. And so on this podcast, this is the third or fourth podcast I did with him. I asked him, after that very first podcast I did with you, you said you gave up so much in your life to be a writer. Can you elaborate now? And he said, it's funny you asked that because I remember you asking that. And I thought about why I said that a lot since then. And then he elaborated what he gave up and it was interesting. So I also listened to other interviews sometimes that people give. And I had to do some interviews for this book on racism. And one of the questions I asked this one woman who was a, a famous politician who's African-American, and she was saying how her life would be better, essentially, if she was white. That's how she felt, or her children's life would be better. So I asked her, how much money, put a dollar value to that, how much money would you spend so your child could be white? And, you know, as she sort of, she took the question very seriously, and she started crying because it was an emotional question for her. And so you always have to, like, think about what are you really curious about deep down that you're almost afraid to ask? And then those are the questions you have to ask. Yeah. Well, that's skipping the line, right? That's not just reading the script. It's trying to get inside the person you're talking to, which is harder than I expected it would be. And part yeah, of it is summoning the courage to ask the hard question. Like I used to um, do this project called 3 a.m. where I would have to interview people. At <laughs> right. HBO's first web series, right? Probably the internet's first web series. In 1996, I started publishing these interviews and I would interview like 20 people a week, usually like on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. And I would have to go up to people and very quickly, you know, at three in the morning and very quickly convince them that I wasn't insane and then ask them these really provocative questions. So it was very stressful, but I learned, I mean, I must've done a couple of thousand interviews over the years that way. And I learned how to do it. Even on podcasts, I get nervous for every podcast guest that I have because like, how am I going to crack this open and figure this out in a way that's different from 
the other circle of podcasts that they're usually on. Okay. I know you got to go, but I have to ask because you say the same thing about being afraid when you go on stage. And yet that feeling in your gut, when you're afraid, that tells you you're doing the right thing, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's the same thing for publishing an article, unless I'm afraid of how people are going to react. Now I said earlier, I assume people are going to agree with me, but there's always something I'm saying either in the story, something I'm revealing about myself or in the opinion, like if I know there's going to be huge cognitive dissonance, there's always something I'm doing with every article I publish where I'm afraid of how people will react. So for instance, with this New York City is Dead article, the one thing I, before I had published, I was really nervous because it was the one time I was expressing a pessimistic view where I didn't have optimism at the end. Usually I think people are overly pessimistic. I try to show how things are much better than people think. I couldn't figure out the solutions to the problems I was raising about New York. And I was really scared because most people like to read like, okay, they're, they're probably thinking while he's reading, well, I'm thinking that they're probably thinking to themselves, okay, he's saying all these bad things, but I know James usually comes full circle by the end and gives us an optimistic point of view. But I didn't do that with this New York City is Dead article. It's the first time in thousands of articles that I wasn't optimistic at the end. I see the sun shining in your window behind you. Where are you? I am in Key Biscayne, Florida. <laughs> so there's your answer. After the New York City is Dead article, as one of my family members wrote afterwards, like, oh, he wasn't a real New Yorker. I see his sun-drenched Instagram lives. He's enjoying the sun. He didn't have real grit, which I had a reminder. I was born in New York and lived in and around New York City all my life. But I guess I'm not a real New Yorker after all. And I still have my apartment in New York, but eventually I'll shut it down. James, where can our listeners find out more information about you, including your new book, Skip the Line, the book that's coming out in March, and your upcoming podcast interviews? Uh, My podcast is good, The James Altucher Show, and just I'd be happy if they pre-order Skip the Line. That's like a dream come true for me. It's a good book, and I benefit when people pre-order. I don't quite know why that is, but somehow that works. The mystery of the New York Times bestseller list, somehow. Yes. Hey, man, thanks for your time. It's been a blast. No problem, Paul. Thank you. All right. That was super fun to talk to James. Greatly appreciate him taking the time to be a part of this. I want to say thank you to my friends Merrick First and Turney Duff for introducing me to James. You might recognize Turney's name because he was the guest for episode number three of Crazy Money. We talked about his book, The Buy Side, which chronicles his success on Wall Street, his enrichment on Wall Street, and then the fact that his career got derailed by the old uh, cocaine. You should check it out. All right, let's get to the takeaways, folks. We talked briefly about this, but he didn't go into it as much as he does in the book. James has this practice of writing down 10 ideas per day. He calls it idea sex, meaning like the more ideas you come up with, the more they create themselves. I did this for a few days, and while nothing brilliant popped out of it, I got to tell you that exercising that part of your mind, the part that explores the possible, the part that ideates and says, what if, it's kind of refreshing. I'm going to start doing it again tomorrow. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. It's like Billy Blaze in the movie Night Shift, the character that Michael Keaton played who carried around a tape recorder and spoke all his brilliant ideas into. I'm an idea man. I'm an idea man. Billy Blaze, Night Shift. If you're under 40, you don't know what movie I'm talking about. So I'll move on. All right. Second takeaway. I really like that he's encouraging people to push themselves and not just push themselves to work harder, but to push themselves to think differently, come at problems in a new way. And I think as social media proliferates and the variety of solutions to problems we didn't even know we had 
proliferate that you have to think in ways that haven't been done before if you want to create something different. And it even applies to your personal life. If you've got something going on, an issue, an opportunity, and it's just not you know breaking through the way you want it to, maybe you're just coming at it wrong. Sometimes when I keep doing things the way I've always done them, even if I try really hard and they don't happen and it gets me frustrated, it's like, step back, quit thinking linearly, quit thinking in a black and white mindset and try to come at it in a different way. What if? Ask yourself, what if? All right. Lastly, James has this thing. He's got this thing where he actually believes that he has something to offer the world. Think about that. Isn't that a wild concept? And he honors this concept by not only working hard, but by being rigorous in the way he comes at problems, by being rigorous in the kind of things he talks about, the conversations he puts forward, and the outrageous things that he's willing to say that other people might want to say but are scared to say. I think that's kind of cool. Yes, sometimes it obviously pisses people off or he comes across as like, who, who is this guy? I think he's a refreshing voice. Even if he's not right all the time, I think it's good that James Altucher is out there, you know, breaking a little glass along the way. All right, next week, got another great guest. Be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast so that that person comes to your inbox not your inbox. It doesn't come to your inbox. It just shows up on your app when you open the app. So by all means, follow, subscribe. If you have a minute, would really love it if you rated and reviewed the show. And if you've stayed all the way to the end of this episode and you haven't rated or reviewed yet, let's go. Let's do it. All right. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.